We are in week four of our series on uh, what's next. Um, if you're joining with us for the first time, I want to do a quick little recap of our vision statement. We know that vision leaks uh, a lot quicker than I would like it to. And so we want to do a quick little reminder. So if we can have that slide up on the screen, please. Maybe you can read with me from the top. We are here to reach people with the giving. Join us as we know God, find freedom discover purpose, make a difference. I'm seeing some of you smile. I'm hoping that's because of the miserable attempt that that was. Can, can we maybe try that one more time? Can, can we do that a little bit more uh, melodically? Let's, let's try and do that together. We are here to reach people with the life-giving message of Jesus. Join us as we know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. We are convinced that if you uh, come into a relationship with Jesus, that He is only ever, always life giving. It will produce life. There will be fruit. You will enjoy a relationship with Him. And so, the ways that we uh, want to help people achieve that is through those four practical steps. So, we want to help you actually know and enjoy God in a personal uh, relationship. So, a couple of weeks ago, we took a look at how we can do that in the way that we approach Scripture. So the way that we read the Bible and reflect on Scripture, and the big, the big takeaway there was to encourage you not to be overwhelmed, not to try and read through the whole Bible you know, in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, but to actually rather do what we call a little drizzle. So it's more about consistency than what it is about uh, quantity. Week two, we took a look at prayer. And kind of using the, the Lord's Prayer as a model, we just try to get really practical with how we can interact with God. And I want to emphasize the word interact because it's not just us talking to Him in a very real, authentic way, but it's also us slowing down enough to also hear Him and give Him space to talk to us. So that's under the no God. We want, that's about a personal relationship with Him. Then last week, Sue introduced the idea of freedom. And by the way, I think that this, out of the four, I think this is the place where people get stuck the most. I think that Christians really struggle to actually uh, possess all of God's promises and, and purposes and, and actually walk in the, in the healing, in the wholeness that, that Jesus actually died for. Uh, so, we can, so we can kind of take that first step to, okay, he's forgiven me, but, but we can get quite uh, hung up on actually the whole rest of the story, which is following him. And by the way, when we follow him, we will find freedom. And so Sue so just kind of introduced this idea of, of actually possessing that promise. She told that powerful story of the young girl who was kidnapped. And even when she was taken into public and people were, were, were asking if they'd seen this girl, she was able to literally just say, I'm her. But because she was living in so much fear, because her enemy, her abductors, had so thoroughly convinced her that they would hurt her and her family, she was terrified. And so she, and so she lived in this imaginary prison until one day she was eventually rescued. And I just think that there's so many of us that allow our enemy to actually keep us in this prison because of lies, deception. And so one of the, one of the greatest, most important steps towards finding freedom is changing the way we think and aligning it with God and His Word, which is the Bible. And that's why, again, we go back to one of the first steps, which is the drizzle, where we just keep, keep allowing this, this, this constant mist of God's Word in our lives. So today I want to take a look at another uh, aspect of freedom. This is the one that I think perhaps more than, than most other things. So I think, the, I think the largest number of people are held back 
from experiencing freedom because of this particular challenge, and, and it's actually around the issue, the, the mountain of unforgiveness. Forgiveness, for some people, depending on what's happened to them, what they've experienced in their life, is like the real F word, is the F bomb. When, when someone even suggests that you, that you give up the grudge, that you, that you give up this, this desire for, for revenge. And there's, there's a reason why I think it's so powerful, why it's so impactful. And by the way, forgiveness is, is at the heart of Christianity. Everything about Christianity. If you, if, I mean, there are a few other things, but, but if you really want to simplify the single greatest Thing. I'm saying even if you're just looking at it from a purely secular, academic point of view, if you're going to compare the, the world religions, the, the single greatest um, distinguishing factor about Christianity is actually around this idea of forgiveness. It's around the idea of grace, that, that we can't build our way up to God, that God came down to us, that God paid the price for us, you mean, you mean everything we do is only a response? So, so this idea of forgiveness is massive, which helps explain why it's such a big challenge for so many of us and why it would be an area that, that your enemy would do everything that he can to just, to just keep massaging that bitterness. Like, like, you know, it's weird that we can even enjoy stuff that's bitter, right? It's like... Some of us like stuff that's sweet. Some of us like stuff that's sour. But it's like, ooh, some of us like, but, ooh, like it's just lacquer, you know. And he can massage that. He can, he can, he can just fan. He can just, he can just keep those embers going towards towards that offense. And and it lands up costing us a great deal more in the end than what I think we realize and what we give it credit for. There are a couple of reasons why unforgiveness can be so seductive. The first one is that it just feels good. Like sometimes, and I'm not saying always, but sometimes, sometimes unforgiveness, sometimes that, that, that vengeful anger, I'm not talking about a healthy anger, I'm talking about like a vengeful anger, like it can be lacquer sometimes, like where you can just imagine, you can fantasize about this person, you know, really being done in or being caught out and, and, and you can just, like you can go to sleep just, just dreaming about vengeful the problem uh, with this, like all other temptations, is that it overpromises and it underdelivers and it comes at a far greater cost than what we realize. Frederick Buchner put it this way. He said, to lick your wounds and savor the pain you will give back is in many ways a feast fit for a king. But then it turns out that what you are eating at the banquet of bitterness is your own heart. The skeleton at the feast is you. You start out holding a grudge, but in the end, the grudge holds you. So it can just feel good. That's why it's seductive. It can just feel good. But secondly, it can be seductive because it's totally justified. Like the person did it. It's legit. That person did something that was damaging. They did something that was destructive. They, they took something from you. They betrayed you. They abused you. And, and by the way, I, I mean, I don't want this to be a, an overly or unnecessarily heavy message, but, but when we're talking about forgiveness, I just want to let you know, I'm very mindful that we have people sitting in our services on a Sunday who have had family members murdered, who have been raped repeatedly, in some cases by people that represented their church when they were younger, 
People have been betrayed. People have been done in business. People have had, I mean, I, I, you'll be surprised at how many weddings and funerals I've been a part of where, where it's the first time in 10 years that like a father and a son is in the same room together. Like, I, I, I know, I know, I know that there are massive, in some cases, massive betrayals that people are carrying. And it's legit. It's justifiable. It's understandable. And that's what can make it so easy to just keep feeding because it happened. It's true. There's no way to water it down or to excuse it. Third, I think it can be so seductive in that it actually eventually holds us captive. And, and again, maybe you, I got into trouble in the first service the way that I described this, but, but uh, okay, yeah, so I'll try not to repeat that again. But, but uh, you know, you, you can be seduced by someone, you know, of the opposite sex, and, and it's just so enticing, so attractive, but before you know it, you're actually in bondage. So, so be, before you know it, you've actually, uh, you know, this, this, this seduction has actually, is actually holding you captive. What, what promised to first make you feel so good and, and in a sense set you free, and I'm free to do whatever I want and be with whoever, it actually lands up holding us captive. We become prisoners. It lands up costing us way more than we ever realized. And you might have heard statements like this one from Chris Hodges where he says that, that holding on to unforgiveness is like setting myself on fire and hoping that my enemy dies from smoke inhalation. Right? So I'm hoping that the smoke is going to be enough to make them choke, but I'm going to die in the process. And that's deadly accurate. Or like Anne Lamott, who said that holding on to unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison, hoping the rat will die. We land up holding on to bitterness and, and anger and hatred and revenge, thinking to some extent that it's holding someone else captive, but the, but the real captive is me. And so I think that's why Jesus addressed this as strongly as he did in the passage that we're going to read today in Matthew chapter 18. For me, it's one of the most powerful parables. It's one of the most challenging metaphors. And, and, and as mentioned in other places in scripture as well, this idea that because we have been forgiven so much, God expects us to forgive others because we've been forgiven. So it's this idea that forgiven people forgive. Take a look quickly at, on the screens, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 says, then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? And in, in today's culture, we don't realize what Peter was doing, but he was actually being really, 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 really generous. He was being really gracious. In, in the culture of that day, and especially even throughout, uh, through the teachings of Judaism, like you forgave someone once, you were maybe expected to forgive them twice, but like third strike, you're out. So for Peter to more than double that, I don't know if he was maybe even trying to sound impressive or if he was genuinely trying to be generous. But he was like, Jesus, how, how often should we forgive someone? And Jesus' response is, no, not seven times. Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. And again, just in case you're doing the maths, no, no, Jesus wasn't being literal about you count down from 490 Okay, you're on 450 chances left. Okay, 382. Like, like obviously, you're not going to count down. The idea that Jesus was saying is that it's endless. And again, you know, it's amazing. Our human nature, we want to know what's in it for us. And so I'm just saying from a selfish point of view, from a self-preservation point of view, I think God's wanting something for us. He's saying, 
you, it's just not worth holding on to that baggage. It's just not worth doing that stuff. You need, to, you need to forgive as many times as you need to forgive. And then he goes on to explain a story that, that honestly, I think that his listeners, because of the cultural context, their minds were like, like would have been blown by, by the way that he describes this as you read from verse 23. He tells him a story and says, therefore the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Now, I just want to pause there for a sec, because even though I've chosen to stick with the New Living Translation, I actually don't agree with the way that they've translated that particular um, quantity. If you read in the New International Version and a few other versions, it'll, it'll either, like the NIV, the, the latest version of the New International Version, will actually use the term 10,000 bags of gold, or some of the other more d- direct translations will uh, use the term 10,000 denarii. To give you some perspective, one denarii, is worth a hundred days' wages. So just to give you some perspective real quick, right? So one denarii is worth a hundred days' wages, and he owed the master or the king 10,000 times 100 days' wages. So, so I kind of worked out very quickly that even if you were to work for long, right? So you take all your supplements and vitamin Cs, and, and, and you work for 50 years. It would take 4,000 lifetimes, to pay off what this man owed. I I need you to, unless we get that perspective, we won't appreciate the point of the story. He owed 4,000 full lifetimes worth of debt. That's what he owed to this king. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. So far, the listeners are like, yep, Yes, sir. Amen. Preach it. That makes sense. Okay, they're with him. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Which, of course, is like ludicrous. 4,000 lifetimes? He's never going to be able to repay this debt. Then his master, and this is the part that blows his listeners' minds, then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. I want you to imagine for a moment, right, that you've been forgiven a debt that you could never pay. You would have to live 4,000 lifetimes, and we don't subscribe to that, just so you know. 4,000 lifetimes to try and repay this debt. Your wife, your kids, every, every possible family, you're going to be sold into slavery for the rest of your life. If you've just been set free, what would your response be? I'd be like, yeah! Like all down the road, across the village, up the hills, down the hills. You're calling everyone you know. You're DMing them. You're WhatsApping us on Facebook. You're like, we're having a party. Like, I've been set free. I owed 4,000 lifetimes. I am done. I'm clean. We're clear. We can still work. We can still live. We can still enjoy ourselves. I owed this mountain that I could never pay. 4,000 of you could never help me pay this over 50 years. And I've been forgiven. Right? Would you think this guy would be excited? If it were you, would your heart be melted? Do you think you'd be feeling grateful? Let's see what he does. Verse 28, but when the man left the king, instead of he went to a fellow servant 
who owed him a few thousand dollars. So in comparison, it's nothing. Like it's actually payable, right? He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. See, these words don't sound familiar. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. This evil servant who's just been forgiven 4,000 lifetimes worth of debt wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And as you can imagine, the king called the man back in, the one that he'd forgiven, and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his entire debt. And verse 35 ends with, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. You understand why it's so hectic? Like it's a hectic story. And I think the main reason for that is because forgiven people forgive. I think the main reason for that is that if we actually realize what he's forgiven us of, what he's done for us, I promise you, it will change your heart to where you can't help but want to redirect that same level of mercy and grace. I think that when it comes to forgiveness, it'll be less about the gravity of the person's offense against us, and it'll be more a case of the degree of our gratitude for what God has done for us. So when I'm refusing to forgive someone else, and I'll explain in a moment what forgiveness is and isn't, when I'm refusing to forgive somebody else, I'm saying that I was more deserving of forgiveness and that this person is less deserving. And that's why Jesus, I don't think he minced any words. He's like, this guy owed a debt that he could never pay. 4,000 lifetimes it would take to pay. If that's what I've been forgiven of, if I've been forgiven this tsunami of sin, if I've been forgiven this Mount Everest of offenses and aggressions, it makes sense that God asks us to trust Him with justice, to trust Him with revenge. He's not saying that there's no justice. He's just saying we're not the ones to carry that and to be fantasizing and wishing and allowing that to continue to control us. To refuse to forgive. This is why this is so important, because to refuse to forgive, I believe, is actually to refuse freedom. Think about the story, everybody. This guy was set free. He was meant to be imprisoned for the rest of his life. He is set free, and what does he do? He goes and he runs straight into prison. He, he refused to walk in that freedom. He refused to, to, to walk in that forgiveness that he'd been given and offer that to others. For us to refuse to forgive is to refuse forgiveness. And by the way, I mean, just the, the cost to you when you're holding on to forgiveness, unforgiveness, it's just massive. I mean, research has been done by medical professionals. There's one, there's one gentleman by the name of Dr. Guy Petit who talks about all of the physical knock-on effects where, where, it's a, where, where it can start to affect your body in the same way as stress and where you start to affect your digestive system and your ability to fight off um, diseases so your immune system is compromised. 
headaches, neck tensions. In fact, some people, so, so I am convinced, by the way, my personal opinion, I'm convinced that there are many people who literally die younger because of the depth and the degree of their bitterness and unforgiveness. And, and I've had more than one person in our church tell me, in fact, someone was mentioning to me again last week that he's convinced his mother died before her time because of bitterness. She refused to forgive her father. Oh, sorry, her husband, his father. Uh, I had another friend in the church as well who was convinced that her sister died long before her time, in, where, where eventually she was ravaged with cancer, but she, she was the most bitter person I've ever known. I'm telling you, it starts to do something to you, and there's medical evidence to, to kind of back that up. And that's why he says, so this Dr. Petit goes on to say that that's why when people genuinely forgive someone, they actually feel like a weight has been lifted from their shoulders. They actually, they actually feel like, like, like the physical effects of, of giving this weight over to God. And again, I'm not saying that it's not legitimate, that it's not massive. I'm not saying that it hasn't maybe even redirected your life. I'm just saying that when we forgive, we're saying, God, I'm giving this over to you. I'm leaving this to you. Let me quickly take a look at some things that forgiveness is not, because I think a lot of damage has been done over the years, where, where, where people have attributed things to the Bible that aren't in the Bible, and where they've attributed things to God and Christians that's not true. And so we've I think sometimes over-sentimentalized forgiveness. And we've tended to make it something that's, that's watered down and wishy-washy, which it's not. So let me tell you very quickly a few things that forgiveness is not. And the first one is that forgiveness is not condoning or minimizing. It's not saying it's okay. It's not okay. If you can excuse it, it doesn't require forgiveness. Okay? If you, that's a secular way of trying to forgive. Okay, I guess I understand. You know, they're having a bad day. Or they were, they were hurt themselves. So hurt people hurt people. So maybe that's why. And, and it makes us feel a little bit better when we can explain it. But it doesn't excuse it. Forgiveness doesn't minimize. It doesn't condone. It's saying that was wrong. That was unacceptable. There might be an explanation, but there's no excuse for it. And I'm going to forgive you anyway. I'm going to release you anyway. Next, forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not in the Bible, forgive and forget. The only thing you need to forget is a bad memory. Sometimes you need to remember. Sometimes you need to actually remember what's been done so that you can protect yourself or protect others from that same behavior. Forgiveness is not forgetting. I think there are occasions where God may help you supernaturally to, to focus on it less. But it doesn't just mean this mystical, supernatural like amnesia. And, and as long as you're still remembering, you think you haven't forgiven I just want to kind of release you from a little bit of that guilt and manipulation. That's not what the Bible says. Forgiveness is also not a feeling. You may still feel angry. You will feel hurt. You can feel betrayed. You can feel all kinds of stuff. It, it doesn't mean that you haven't forgiven when you're, still, when, you're still, when you're grieving what has been done to you or what's been taken from you. That's a lie. And again, by the way, you have an enemy who wants to discourage you and wear you down by saying, no, 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 you haven't really forgiven. And no, no, you're obviously not serious about this and you obviously haven't trusted God yet or God hasn't done a work yet if you still feel, if you still feel pain over this. No, no, that, that's a process. Forgiveness is not fair. Maybe that's a discouraging revelation for some of us. It's not fair. It's not deserved. If it was deserved, well, then it wouldn't be forgiveness. It would just be an explanation. It would just be understandable. Forgiveness is not fair, but let me encourage you, you don't want God to be fair to you or to me. I'm like, thank you, God, that you're not fair. Thank you, God, that you are way kinder to me. Like, 
like way, way, way kinder to me than what I deserve. Forgiveness is also not ignoring justice and consequences. If someone has done something and they're a, and they're a, and they're a harm or a threat or a danger and, 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 and there's no reason at all to have some extreme confidence that they're not going to do it again, justice, like there's, God's just. There's a need for justice. There's a need for people to be taken out of society in some cases. There's a need for people to be removed from certain relationships. It doesn't mean that, that you... You see, you can still go and testify at a trial but still not be holding on to or allowing it to hold on to you, allowing that bitterness, that, that hatred, that, that revenge to, to have a hold of you. You can still be a part of a just process, or you can still be a part of allowing consequences while still having forgiven that person. Is this making sense? Forgiveness is not dependent, and this might disappoint some of you, on the offender's repentance. Forgiveness is a one-player game. Truth be told, there are lots of people that have hurt you that are not repentant. They don't care. And so again, we're faced with this choice where we can continue to, to allow that. To, so, so let's say someone took a day from you or they took a year from you or they took five. Am I going to give the rest of my life to them as well? So they're not repentant and everything in me wants to make them repentant and make them pay and make them grovel. And all it's doing is, is eating away my own heart. It is a one-player game. Forgiveness is not reconciling. Now, in case you think I'm speaking heresy, there's a place for reconciliation. But reconciliation takes two people. Is that rude? Two people. Forgiveness takes one person. I let you go. You may never care. You may never repent. Some of you know the story of Joyce Meyer, very well-known speaker and author. Her father raped her over 200 times. She says, I know it was 200 times. I remember. She was able to forgive him decades before he ever apologized. Forgiveness is a one-play game. She got to a point where I think she was able to, and that's supernatural, by the way. I'm not saying that that's easy for a moment. It's not. It's not. It, I think that that's only possible with God. There are, there are three types of offense. There's level one, level two, level three. Level one is like knucklehead stuff. It's everyday stuff. It's, it's first world problems. Like we should, we should just be able to bear with each other, forgive each other, get, get past stuff. Like I really wouldn't worry about, you know, they speed bumps. Then there are genuine challenges. That's where you're having to deal with disappointments and betrayals and, and that kind of stuff. But, but, but still, you know, we can practice what I'm talking about. But then, then there are those just those levels of offense, those hurts, that is naturally impossible. Like we need supernatural help. But I'm saying in a case like Joyce Myers, she, she wasn't going to give the rest of her life. In fact, she goes on to say that she would have been married six or seven times if she hadn't dealt with it. She would have had no relationship. She, she was so broken. Instead, she's been able to stay married for decades, four children, ten grandchildren. She's been able to live a life of freedom because she chose not to hold on to a very justifiable very understandable hatred and bitterness. And, I mean, the incredible part of the story is, I mean, she eventually, towards the end of her parents' life, felt God prompting her to buy them a house. I mean, her mother had been a party to this, by the way. She's like, my mother never did anything to stop it. 
They're at the end of their life. She feels God prompting her to buy them a house. She's like, get behind me, Satan. It doesn't go away. She speaks to her husband, thinking that her husband will speak sense to her. And he's like, if it's God, we have to do it. They land up buying, you know, because they were living in a city far away. They land up moving them to the city close to them. And she's like, I'll, I'll buy them a rundown house and a second, you know, junker for a car and some old furniture. And God's like, you're going to buy them a nice house. You're going to buy them brand new furniture. You're going to get them a decent car. You're going to get someone to cut their grass every week and someone to buy them groceries and take them to the doctor. For three years, this went on. Neither her mother or father had ever apologized. So we're talking decades. No one had ever taken ownership. No one had ever acknowledged. And then one day her mother calls her and says to her, you please, you've got to come around. Your dad's been crying for like three weeks. And he, he's, like, he's like bent over, over his walker, saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I've been wanting to apologize for three years. And I've just never been man enough to apologize. I'm so sorry. And she goes on to explain the gospel. And he's like, you think God can forgive me? Because by the way, he was also, he also grew up in an incestuous family. Hurt people hurt people. Which is why, again, by the way, when you hold on to unforgiveness, you're not just, you're not just eating your own heart. You, I, I'm convinced that you're going to affect the generations beneath you. I am so grateful that my mother didn't hold on to unforgiveness when her father rejected her. She was from an Afrikaans family. My father was from an English family. At that stage, he was like, you're not going to marry him. If you marry him, you're dead to me. She married him, and she was dead to him for the remainder of his life. So, so we're his grandkids. We'd go to, uh, to Durban to uh, visit her sister who he lived with. He'd want to know if we're coming so that he wouldn't be there. I never met my grandfather. Uh, he died eventually, never reconciled. That could have done something to my mother. Can I tell you, she's probably the most gracious person I know. I'm so grateful that she forgave. So she shares the gospel with her father. He's like, you really think God could forgive me? She's like, yes, God can forgive you. He surrenders his life to God. Even at this last stage of his life, asks if he can get baptized. She baptizes him. When he comes out of the water, he's like, praise God, praise God. She said, like, I never thought I'd hear those words out of my father's lips. She said... I thought I was buying a house. I was buy- you know what she means when she says, I was buying a soul. Like, I'm so glad I was obedient to God. Anyway, I'm getting distracted. What was I talking about? Was I talking about reconciling? Forgiveness is not what? Okay, so forgiveness is not reconciling. That takes two people. That takes two people. And by the way, forgiveness is also not trusting. Again, forgiveness is given. Trust is earned. So there's a difference between forgiving, that's a one-player game, reconciling takes two people, so, this, so the other person actually has to take ownership, and you take ownership of your role, they take ownership of their role, and you choose to forgive one another, or to forgive whoever's offended, and to reconcile. That doesn't mean that you automatically trust them again, trust has to be earned. Trust has to have a track record. The Bible says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So don't think that just because you don't trust the person again that you haven't forgiven, you can forgive without trusting the person again. And then lastly, forgiveness is not impossible. Thank God. Thank God, everybody, that forgiveness is not impossible. Philippians 4 verse 13 says, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And I don't know, maybe you're sitting here today and, and you've had something legitimate done to you. 
But there's a part of you, and I'm, I'm hoping as the Holy Spirit, that, that's prompting you, touching you, tapping you, saying, like, you need, to let, you, need to, you need to hand that over to me. You need to give that over to God. You need to allow yourself to be set free and walk in forgiveness. And I just want to encourage you, it's not impossible. Very quickly, how do we forgive? Number one, and probably most importantly, we pray. How do we forgive? We pray. I pray for myself, and the Bible actually says we pray for the other person. So I would probably argue pray for yourself first because you might need some supernatural help to actually even just begin to let go of some of that hatred, some of that bitterness. So pray for yourself. But the Bible also tells us to pray for the offender. Romans 12 verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God, I know you wish this wasn't in the Bible, will bless them. And when that word says bless them, I don't think it means with this incredible business deal or with winning the lottery. It's like the greatest blessing you can ever pray on someone is that they get to know God. That, that God helps them come to their senses. That, that he reveals how kind he is to them. That he brings them to a place of hope and wholeness and healing. And you'll be amazed at what God can do if we're willing to pray. And by the way, by the way, my, my greatest litmus test over the years to, to try and figure out, have I actually forgiven? Because, because for me, if I'm honest with you, I don't, I, don't think I've, I don't think I struggle a lot with stuff that gets done to me. I really struggle with stuff that gets done to other people. Like, I can want to kill people that hurt people. Sometimes I don't even know them. I, but I can, I, can, I can want to kill them. And, and so I've got to be able to pray that God will do what only God can do in my heart and that God will do what only He can do in their heart. And so for me, if I can pray, if I can pray for that person, then even though I might still feel angry, you might still be concerned, you might still not trust, etc. I'm like, okay, God, I, think, I don't think this has got a hold of my heart. So we pray. Secondly, we persevere. It's a process, everybody. If something significant is taking place in your life, it's seldom all at once or once and for all. You often have to actually manage this process as you continue to, to forgive, as you continue to hand over to God. Third, I would encourage you to stop talking. And what I mean by that is talking in the wrong spaces to the wrong people. Proverbs 26 verse 20 says, A fire goes out without wood and quarrels disappear when gossip stops. So only you know if this is gossip or is this godly. Like, am I asking somebody to help me? Am I asking someone for perspective? Am I talking to a friend to my future? Or am I just looking for someone to, to help me fantasize and strategize on how to take revenge? Next, I would encourage you to recognize the real enemy. I know, I know we all have an idea of who the enemy is, but I want to encourage you, whoever they are, at their worst, they are a small E enemy. But there's a real capital E enemy behind the small e enemy. And I, again, that's not to water anything down. That's not to justify anything. That's not to excuse anything. I just want to remind you that, that there's a real enemy. And I've got to tell you that there are times in my life where I've got to, where I've got to ask, God, am I, am I, the way I'm reacting right now. So, so you, can't hap, you can't help what happens to you, right? But you can help how you respond to it. God, the way I'm responding right now, am I, am I making the enemy happy or am I making you happy? Because the way I respond to what's happened to me, recognize the real enemy. And lastly, do good. And that's why that story of Joyce Meyer is so powerful because 
you know that that's only possible with the supernatural help of God. I'm, I'm telling you that if someone has truly hurt you, you, I think it's impossible to actually forgive them within your own strength, to let go of that grudge in your own strength, and to even get to a place where you can do good. And by the way, just, just to encourage you, I, I would remind you that this was decades later, that she was in a place where she could obey that kind of prompting from God. So don't, don't be discouraged or condemned if you don't feel like you can do that right now. But take a look at Romans 12, verse 17 onwards. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Like, I'm just asking you, if that's what you've been doing, like, how's that working for you? Really, I mean. Like, do you really feel lighter when you keep stoking hatred? They, they, they treated you hatefully, so you're going to treat them back hatefully. Like, is, is that really light? Is that life-giving? Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Darkness will never overcome darkness. Only light can penetrate darkness. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody if it is possible as far as it depends on you. So that's also a really important scripture, by the way. As far as it depends on you. God doesn't ask you to do anything that you can't do. As far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I want you to stand with me, please. Kind of the last story that I want to leave you with is, is one that blew my mind years ago. We, a few of us spent a week with some pastors and leaders from northern Uganda and, and south Sudan. And these are these are pastors and leaders that are working with, in my opinion, some of the most broken people on the planet. Uh, some of you know the history in northern Uganda and, and South Sudan where, where just countless uh, boys would be kidnapped from their villages and in many cases made to kill family members. Um, and they would become child soldiers in the Lord's Resistance Army. And they would, and they would do atrocities that, that left them as you can imagine, absolutely broken, but the only way to survive. What do you do when you're a boy? What do you do when you're a boy and they're going to kill your mother if you don't kill somebody else? You know, it's just, you're talking about trauma on a whole other level. So they were working with these child soldiers, thousands of them, that were, that were trying to be reintroduced back into society. And, they, and you're trying to put them back into a community where they've, where they've been forced to, to commit atrocities against other members of the community. And they're working with, I think, also possibly thousands of, of, of young ladies or girls that had also been taken and terrible things done to them. In many cases, their lips would be cut off, their noses were cut off. Like they were, they, they, they were, they were not only traumatized, they were left with physical scars that would never be repaired. Like these, are, like these guys are working with these people, trying to explain the, the good news of the gospel. You think that's hard? I'm like, yeah, it's like... And they would use this analogy. They would, they would teach them using the simple story of if a snake bites you, if a poisonous snake bites you, the venom is deposited. You can chase after the snake. That can become your priority. You can chase after that snake so that you can get it and you can kill it. But you will die. So you may catch it, you may not catch it, but either way, if that's going to be your priority, you are going to die. Or you can leave the snake and you can choose to deal with the poison. And so I want to encourage you today. 
if you're standing here and if at any point you have sensed the Holy Spirit just gently, and by the way, I think it's probably going to be fairly gentle. He's just, he's just bringing something to your attention. I want to encourage you to stop chasing the snake. I want to encourage, I'm saying guys, if, and I mean, they've got incredible testimonies of like these two guys are best friends and this one's father murdered this one's father. Like how do you, how does that work? How do you have people in the same community, in the same church where, where, where some were, were the unlikely aggressors and others were the victims? Only God. I think it's only when someone, the fact that Joyce Meyer can, can forgive her parents and let go of that poison is when you realize, I have been forgiven 4,000 lifetimes worth of debt. God, help me to forgive. Help me to let go. In Jesus' name.